One of the heartbreaks of ministry is to see people who were doing well spiritually for a season drift away from their devotion to the Lord. The Apostle Paul certainly understood that heartbreak, which is why he often addressed that issue in his letters. Let's turn to the book of Philippians as we begin our look at the fourth and final chapter of this tremendous letter written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And because of its importance, we're only going to cover the first verse in this message. And whenever we limit ourselves to one verse as a text, it's necessary to look at a number of different supporting and reinforcing passages. So that's what we're going to be doing in this message. Therefore, I encourage you to to plan to follow along as we jump around to develop Paul's thought here in verse 1, because we'll use this as our uh, home base, but pull in a lot of other passages that address and speak to the same issue. Notice the opening verse of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Paul begins this verse with the word therefore. That means, obviously, that he's connecting it to what he just said. Remember now, when Paul wrote his letter, or all of his letters, or in fact this would pertain to all the books in the Bible, when they were written, they weren't written with chapter divisions. The chapter divisions are often helpful to give us sort of bite-sized portions, but when you are reading the Bible, and especially the letters, Uh, You need to, in your mind, train yourself to not stop at the end of a chapter because often the chapter breaks are helpful, but never are they inspired, and they can break up a thought, which is the case here. Paul begins with the word therefore because he's connecting it to what he just said at the end of chapter 3 when he said in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So here's the connection. Paul is saying this. In light of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven and in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to transform us to be like himself, we ought to stand fast, verse 1, of chapter 4, we ought to stand fast while we anticipate and look forward to that day. That's why Paul follows verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 with his statement in verse 1 of chapter 4. In light of these realities at the end of chapter 3, therefore, therefore, my beloved and longed for brother, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. It is clear that the Apostle Paul had a special love for these believers here in Philippi. That comes out as he writes this verse because, as you can see, he piles up words to express his love for them. He actually uses six terms of endearment in this one verse. First, he calls them beloved. The word beloved is the same word God the Father used when he said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That ought to let us know how deeply Paul felt for these people. He delighted in these people. Many commentators have suggested 
that Paul was closer to this church than any other church with which he worked. And as you study this letter in comparison with his other letters, I believe the evidence backs up that assertion. Now we know that Paul had a tremendous capacity to love. He even loved those who did not reciprocate his love, like the Corinthians. He said on one occasion, it seems as if the more I love you, the less I am loved by you. Paul loved those who didn't reciprocate his love. He even loved those he'd never met, according to Colossians 2. He writes to the Colossians and expresses his great love for them as believers and and as their apostle, the apostle of the Gentiles. And he says, but you've never seen my face in the flesh. We've never met each other. I don't even know you. So Paul loved those who didn't reciprocate his love. He loved those he'd never met. But Paul was human. He had feelings. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't a machine. So even though he loved those who did not treat him properly, and even though he loved those he'd never met, he possessed a unique love for the Philippians because of their reciprocation of love. Paul was human with human emotions. He could love people with the love of Christ, and so should we. But you can't deny the fact that loving relationships with lovable people contribute to a unique kind of joy in life. The Philippians reciprocated Paul's love more than any other group of people, and that strengthened the bond between them. That's why he said what he did back in chapter 1. Go back to the left just a little bit, chapter 1. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then down in verse 7, he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of of Jesus Christ. Now, almost all of our English translations say affection or something like that. Literally, the Greek term is bowels. That sounds strange. Not, usually, you don't write you know, to your sweetheart and say, I love you with all my bowels. But that's the word here. Because when you really do yearn for someone, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. So Paul says, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ with this this knot in the pit of my stomach because I miss you so deeply and love you so profoundly. There was a special bond, a special relationship with the Philippians because they loved him too and they demonstrated it by being there for him. They stood by him through the years with their prayers, with their support. They didn't turn on him when he was imprisoned. Evidently some did according to the later verses here in chapter 1. But the Philippians stood by him. They demonstrated their love to him. They sent Epaphroditus to bring him a gift and to minister to him. When he was in Thessalonica for only three weeks, these believers took two offerings and sent them to him to support his ministry. So their expressions of love to him strengthened this bond that was already there. He loved the Philippians in a unique way. That's why he refers to them the way he does in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. 
The word translated longed for here in verse 1 means to strain or reach for something. It was a word used for an athlete stretching for the finish line. Paul yearned for these believers. He calls them here in verse 1 his joy. When Paul thought about how God had saved them and transformed them and changed them and what they would become by the grace of God, he was overwhelmed with joy. He really loved these people. One man I read on this passage said this, and I quote, If we felt for each other as Paul did, we should soon recognize the scandal of division, end quote. That's a penetrating thought. There's no doubt that Paul loved these people deeply. Here in verse 1, he calls them his crown. The Greek word is stephanos. It was a victor's crown. They were crowns of Paul's victory granted by God's grace. He loved them in every dimension. He loved them with the agape love of Christ, the willful love of Christ, but he also loved them with the phileo, deep friendship kind of love because they were lovable in that way. Some people sadly, just aren't lovable in that kind of way. They won't let you love them that way. But the Philippians were unique in this sense. You even see evidence of this back in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. Here was one of the members of this congregation. His name was Epaphroditus. Chapter 2, verse 25, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, Understand what Paul is saying here. The church had sent Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome to minister to Paul on their behalf. When he got there, he got sick and almost died. So Paul said, as soon as he was able, I felt the need to send him back to you. Verse 26, since he was longing for you all. Now don't think, oh, come on, the guy got homesick. No, that's not why he was longing for you. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. What a fantastic perspective. He says, listen, they sent me to do a work, to do a mission. I go, I go to minister to Paul. I get sick. Now they're going to hear about it, and they're going to be upset with themselves for sending me. So I want to get back to relieve that from their minds. That's, in, that's incredible. Epaphroditus was distressed because his friends heard he was sick, and he didn't want them worrying about him. That's a great guy. Instead of saying, man, why did I ever do this mission? Why did I go all the way from Philippi to Rome? Why now I'm sick, I almost die and all. He's like, man, I don't want them to feel bad for sending me. I need to get over this and get back. This was a, this was a great group of people, unique in the first century. And Paul's loving relationship with these special people produced an unusual joy that is not seen in all of Paul's other letters. Some of you can relate to this. There are some believers in your life that you just can't help loving. They are so thoughtful, so sincere, so humble, so genuine, so tender, so responsive to the Lord. They are a joy to be around. They're a joy to think about. They're easy to love. That's not to say that we shouldn't love everybody because we should. But loving relationships with people like these people produce a special and unique kind of joy. And when you love people like this, then your greatest desire for them is to see them doing well spiritually. 
And that's what comes out in chapter 4, verse 1. That's what Paul wanted for the Philippians. He wanted, for them, he wanted them to stand strong in the Lord. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he exhorted them by saying, So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The softness and tenderness of Paul's words of endearment are followed by this plea to stand strong. He wanted them to stand fast. He wanted to know that they were doing well spiritually. He wanted them to be characterized by love, joy, and peace. That comes out in verses 2 through 4. The following verses, he says in verse 2, I implore Yodi and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul wanted the Philippians to be characterized by love and joy and peace, all three of which are a part of the fruit of the Spirit. He longed for them to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. His greatest desire for them, because of his deep and profound love for them, was to see them doing well spiritually. One of the greatest fears in Paul's life, it's obvious as you read his letters, One of the greatest fears in his life was that he would hear that some of his Christian friends were backsliding, were not standing strong. So throughout his letters, you know this, you've read Paul's letters, he exhorts them to stand strong or stand fast. Back up just one letter to see this to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, notice how he closes, closes out this letter He says, finally, my brethren, this is the last thing I want to say to you. I want to leave you with this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. He says it over and over again here. Stand strong, stay strong, put on the armor of God. Isn't it easy to begin slipping in the Christian life? The world, the flesh, and the devil are continually pulling at us and tugging at us. And it's so easy to slip without even realizing it. That's why we're called to to stand fast and to stand strong. And every one of the, the writers throughout the New Testament, every one of them expresses this thought, this concern. Let me show you some examples. Go all the way over near the end of the New Testament to 3 John. 3 John it's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and back up two one-chapter letters. Chapter, 3 John, there's just one chapter, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's the heart's desire of any spiritual parent, 
This is what you long for in your children. This is what a pastor longs for in the flock. This is what a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader longs for in his or her class members. This is what a spiritual parent longs for in his or her disciple. You have no greater joy than to know that your spiritual children walk in truth. John made a similar statement in the previous letter. Look at 2 John, just back a page or two. 2 John verse 4 He says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. If you have a spiritual burden for people in your circle, whatever that is, if you have a spiritual burden for people in your circle, then you can understand this. There is nothing more heartbreaking than to know that your spiritual children are walking wayward. That's the heartbreak of the ministry. That's why the heart of a pastor stays broken and discouraged much of the time. Look at what Paul said about this all the way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils of the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. And you say, wow, that's a lot to go through. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot to bear. But none of that compared to what Paul says next. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, What kind of concern are you talking about, Paul? Verse 28 or verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Or as some translations render, who is led into sin without my intense concern? Who is led into sin without my deep, profound agony? Paul described his hurt as inward burning. Because that's how deeply it hurt him when people he loved gave themselves to sin. That's the burden a true shepherd carries around all the time. You carry around a deep burden because there are people in the flock who foolishly allow themselves to be led into sin. And that same burden ought to be felt by every caring Christian. But unfortunately, according to Scripture, it's very rare. Do you know what Paul says in Philippians 2? Go back to our letter, Philippians chapter 2, and look at what he says in verse 19. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I may be encouraged when I know your condition. I want to know how you're doing spiritually. So I want to send Timothy, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. 
For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, I want to send Timothy because I know Timothy will sincerely care for your spiritual condition. But he said Timothy was the exception. He was the exception. I mean, I can't, I can't hardly fathom this verse. It's so easy for us to look back at the first century and say, oh, man, all the Christians back then, they were just sold out, on fire, you know, super spiritual Christians. No, they weren't. You know what the Christians were like in the first century? They're like Christians in the 21st century. It's always been the same. Paul says, I, I want to send Timothy. I don't have anyone else I can send that I'll have confidence will really care for how you're doing spiritually. Timothy had no doubt caught this from Paul. Look at what he says. Turn to the right to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, now remember, if you know the background of Thessalonians, Paul had been there a short time. He was run out of town. He had to leave. So he's really concerned for the Thessalonican Christians, and so he sends Timothy back to see how they're doing spiritually. Have they been adversely affected by all of the consternation? And so he's sitting, in a sense, on pins and needles waiting for Timothy to come back to give him word on how they're doing spiritually. And he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, We were comforted concerning you by your faith, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. I love that verse. He says, it's like we weren't even living, but now we can live because we know you're doing well spiritually. Paul had been experiencing the slow death of lonely ignorance. But when Timothy came with this good news, Paul was revived in his spirit. Lenski put it this way, quote, enter into Paul's emotion. What would have been his distress of soul if in addition to all the other loads resting upon his heart, there had come the report that the Thessalonian church had gone to pieces. It would have stunned his weary heart and left him as one dead, end quote. Now we need to ask ourselves some questions and not keep this historical. So here we go. Do we we have this same kind of passionate spiritual concern for the spiritual condition of people around us? Is this our desire for our family members? Is this our passion for our friends, our neighbors? Is this our longing for others in the body of Christ? In your discipleship group, Sunday school class, whatever the group is, Paul's example ought to be a tremendous challenge to all of us. He longed to see God's people stand strong. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he said, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. In Galatians 5, 1, he said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Paul longed to see God's people stand strong. And whenever he needed someone to assist him in helping God's people stand strong, he often turned to Timothy Because Timothy had that same burden or passion. In fact, the way Paul described Timothy in Philippians 2.20 shows the depth of Timothy's compassion. Paul says in 
Philippians 2.20, he says, I want to send Timothy to you, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Notice that little phrase, sincerely care. That word care, it's a strong term. It's the same word used over in chapter 4, verse 6 in a negative sense, translated in most of our English Bibles, be anxious for nothing. Same word. In Philippians 2.20, it's used in a positive sense. Timothy would have a heavy burden for the spiritual condition of the Philippians. He would have an unselfish care for the spiritual condition of others. But in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells the Philippians not to be selfishly worried about their circumstances. Don't be burdened about your circumstances. Don't worry about them. But, it sounds like a contradiction almost, a spiritual burden for others is to be commended. This word care is also the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 when he says, besides those other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul had a deep concern for all the churches, how they were doing spiritually. Timothy caught that same passion. Paul was confident that Timothy would genuinely care for the spiritual well-being of the Philippians. But there's a sad note in Philippians 2 because verse 20 says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Paul had this confidence in Timothy, but it's a shame that he only had it in Timothy. Verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. In some ways, this sounds worse in English than it is in Greek. As Lenski points out, this does not mean only their own interests, not at all those of Christ, for then they would not be Christians at all. It means that they let their own interests interfere with Christ's. They do not pursue Christ's interests exclusively, end quote. That's what Paul's describing. It's not that Paul didn't know any other Christians. Obviously, he knew other Christians. But Paul didn't have the confidence that anyone else would sacrifice their own interests for the sake of the cause of Christ. Paul knew that many of the other Christians around him would let their own interests interfere with Christ's. The word seek is in the present tense here, by the way. It means they have an ongoing preoccupation with their own interests, which interferes with Christ's interests. Now again, it's, it's so important we don't leave this as history. So just think about this with me. Ask yourself this question as I ask myself this question. What do you sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Do you ever sacrifice time, money, sleep, pleasure, relaxation, your interests? Sadly enough, still verse 21, still today verse 21 is true all too often of us in describing us, Timothy was an exception. He was a model of what Paul exhorted back in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, and he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And the way verse 4 is worded provides the perfect balance. It's not wrong to look out for your own interests, the interests of your family, not at all. Sometimes you have to say no to ministry opportunities. You can't do everything, but the point is this. 
We have to be willing to sacrifice for the work of Christ. And Timothy provides the example for us. By the way, when you compare in chapter 2 here, Philippians, when you compare verse 20 with verse 21, this is really fascinating. You find that Paul equates, notice what he does here. He equates sincerely caring for the spiritual condition of others with seeking the things which are of Christ Jesus. In other words, let me say it this way. If we want to measure how much we seek the things of Christ Jesus, then we need to ask ourselves, what do we do to care for the spiritual condition of others? That's the question verses 20 and 21 force us to ask. Paul didn't have people around him who, match up to, who matched up to the standard Timothy model. It's not that none of the other Christians would serve Christ or Paul at all. No, it's just that they weren't single-minded like Timothy. There were probably others who would serve, but they would serve on their own terms and at their own convenience. They weren't like Timothy. Again, it's, this, is, this is such, such a, a, an important concept in the New Testament that we, we need to stop and evaluate. Is, is serving Christ just one item on our long list of interests? Sadly, this, this is the fact. This could be said of so many. There are believers to be taught and trained and encouraged, but so few care. There are children to be taught and trained and guided into the things of the Lord, but so few care. There are people to reach, but so few care. There are burdens to be borne, but so few care. Why? Well, one of the reasons is we, we just don't make the time. We're too busy, too preoccupied with our own business. So few care. What a sad thought. Paul and Timothy cared. They longed to see God's people stand strong, but they weren't the only ones in the New Testament. Let me show you another few examples. Go back to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And what did he do? He encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Barnabas, the encourager, his name wasn't Barnabas, by the way. I think you know that. That was his nickname. His name was Joseph, but he was given the nickname Barnabas because Barnabas means encourager. So Barnabas, the encourager, was encouraging these believers to stand strong and stand fast. Skip over a few chapters to chapter 14. 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith 
and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Beloved, this was, a, this, was, this was a major part of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. It's easy to think that they only wanted to reach people with the gospel, which was a huge part of their lives and ministry. I don't want to diminish that in any way. But that wasn't all they did. They wanted to reach people with the gospel, but they also saw the importance of exhorting God's people to stand strong. Evidently, a man by the name of Epaphras caught this same burden. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, I'll just read it to you, or you can turn if you want, but Colossians chapter 4, when Paul writes to the believers in Colossae, he says this in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. What did he pray? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. When you pray for other believers, pray like that. Pray like that. Pray that they will stand. That's what Paul and Barnabas and Epaphras prayed for other believers. That was the content of their encouragement. And we could add Peter to the list. In 2 Peter chapter 3, as he closed out his final letter, 2 Peter 3 verse 14 He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation is also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him as written to you as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware Lest you, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but by contrast, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at that. What a way to close your letter. Peter says, be careful that you don't fall away from your steadfastness into the error of the wicked. Stand strong, stay strong. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe the consummate verse on this subject is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So stand fast. This was the This was the concern on the heart of every one of the writers of the New Testament. Stay strong. Stand fast. Let me address this to all of us here, but especially to a number of you young people here. A lot of you are doing really well spiritually. But how are you going to be doing a year from now? Or five years from now? Or ten years from now? Remember, the Christian life's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Stand fast. Stand strong. How do we do that? How do we stand fast, stand strong? Well, Paul's going to specify that in verses 2 through 9 of Philippians 4, and we'll develop his thoughts in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But just as an overall general principle, let's look at Psalm 1 as we close the message. Psalm 1, you probably are familiar with these words, but... When it comes to how can we be rooted and grounded and stand strong, 
Psalm 1 answers it as well as any other passage in Scripture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The psalmist says, listen, if you want to, you want to be strong, you want to be a tree planted by the rivers of water, then you do this with the word of God. I can still remember the very first time I saw the, the object lesson I think the psalmist had in mind when he wrote this in Israel. I was in the Judean wilderness, Wadi Kelt. Some of you have been there. You know this huge wadi. It's out in a barren wilderness where Jesus was tempted his 40 days and 40 nights. You could easily die out in that wilderness. There's this huge wadi, this, this huge ravine, and there's some water down in it, and there is nothing. You look around, it's just rocks and dirt, and you look down in it, and there are trees, strong planted right there by streams of water. What an illustration. In the midst of desert, in the midst of barrenness, spiritually, we can be wherever you're at. You can be in, in a, surrounded by people who are spiritually dead, spiritually barren, but if you will do what this says, you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf shall not wither. By meditating in the Word of God, we become firmly planted and we stand strong. So, beloved, let me give you the same exhortation Paul gave the Philippians. Stand fast in the Lord. Keep growing. Stand strong. Don't fall away from your own steadfastness by being led away with the error of the wicked. You know, I hate to say this, but it's true, so I'll, I'll share it in this way. My guess is that if we were to do, a, right as soon as we close this service, if we were to do a group picture of every one of us present here, and then five years from now come together and look at the picture, now barring how you know, much uglier some of us would look, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm just saying you do a group picture, and then you just go through the list and you say, how's he doing spiritually? How's she doing spiritually? There would be some real sadness. I hope that's not true. But if experience is any indicator, five years from now, there'd be any number of people who are present right here who won't be doing well spiritually. You won't be standing strong. You won't be standing fast. You will, as Peter warned not to allow happen, you will fall away from your own steadfastness by being led away with the error of the wicked. So stand fast in the Lord. Keep growing. Stand strong. Let's pray together. Father, may we hear this challenge to our hearts that it's so easy for us to get sidetracked. The sad reality is that unless you intervene and unless every one of us here in this room takes heed to what we've heard that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, there will be people who are present right here in this service who won't be standing fast.
Because that's just the sad reality of what, what Christianity has been since the first century. People who do well for a while, but they burn out. They run a sprint, not a marathon. So Father, may we hear these exhortations. There are so many of them scattered throughout the New Testament. May we hear these exhortations which challenge us to stand fast, to stand strong, not be led astray. Don't be pulled away. Don't get sidetracked. Stay true to the Lord. Keep pressing ahead. Father, may you work that grace in every one of our lives, every one of us gathered here, so that if in some way we were all to be transported back here five years from now and we could all gather and look at a group picture, what a thrill it would be able to, what it would be to be able to say not one person, not one person has fallen away. Not one has backslidden. Not one has defected. But all are standing strong. All are standing fast. Father, we pray that you would grant that, not only for our sake, not not only for our good, but for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.